You are listening to Appalachian Words, the show about language in Appalachia and the Great Smoky Mountains. I'm your host, Jennifer Heinmiller. I am the co-author of the Dictionary of Southern Appalachian English, which is a historical dictionary over 1.3 million words long, covers all sorts of words from the Southern Appalachian Mountains, everything from Adam's house cat to Zigarboo to my personal favorite, Circumvengimus. So if you are curious about any of those terms or any little tidbits of Appalachian culture or history, I urge you to check out the dictionary, which will be published early next year by the University of North Carolina Press. Appalachian English is a rich language with a history stretching back hundreds of years. But outside of our region, there are more stereotypes than honest conversation about the culture. So, in an effort to bring the language and its history to a wider audience, I decided to start this show. For each episode, uh, if you're a regular listener, you know, I read and discuss entries in the dictionary and highlight uh, little bits of trivia about Appalachian culture and history, depending on the theme of the week. Um, And I talk sometimes about how the dictionary is set up, how we went through the process of compiling it and editing it. Um, And I'll probably talk a little bit more about that in the coming weeks as we move closer and closer to publication, which is very exciting. As always, I welcome your questions, comments, stories, or any other message you'd like to send to me. Um, And I do want to thank the people who have reached out to me. I just love getting your messages and the dialogue that we've created. It's, It's really cool, you know, especially being socially isolated and keeping our distance from one another. It's really neat to to meet listeners and just talk about such a fascinating subject. So that being said, welcome back to the mountains and foothills of Southern Appalachia. You are listening to episode 11. So in this episode, I guess I will say right off the bat, if you are squeamish about medical terminology Um, Or if you're anything of a hypochondriac, you might want to skip this episode um, because I will be talking about folk medicine. Um, Nothing too graphic because I'm pretty squeamish myself, truth be told. Um, But just want to give you a heads up there. Um, That is the topic of the day. And as luck would have it, actually, I had planned to record this uh, yesterday, so it's Sunday, what is it, the 26th of July today, and I had planned to record this yesterday or Friday, and I ended up needing a teeny tiny medical procedure myself, so I guess that's just the theme of the week. Um, nothing nothing horrible, nothing, you know, well, knock on wood, you know, that everything heals up, but um, no, in my case, it was... Um, I had somehow gotten a splinter or fragment of who knows what stuck in my big toe on the underside. I do a lot of trail running. Um, I used to do a lot of hiking, and these days we've had a lot of aggressive bear activity. I've actually seen bears like coming down my street, like hanging out in front of my front porch recently. So I don't do much hiking, but there are trails, um, like places like Biltmore, where it's, you know, relatively safe. So I'll go out there on these natural surface trails and, you know, stuff gets in your shoes and socks. And I got something stuck up in my toe um, actually several weeks ago. I'm not even sure when I did it exactly, but it started bothering me more and more. And I sent a picture to my doctor um, and she said, yeah, you know what? You should probably get that checked. Um, So ended up, it was bothering me more and more and ended up uh, going to an urgent care center yesterday morning and... Uh, I had to get it surgically removed. (laughs) So, 
weekend adventures, right? Um, but reflecting back on it and thinking about the topic for this week, you know, there is such a rich lore of folk medicine and uh, folk remedies and herbal remedies uh, and all these different treatments that they they used in the mountains in those days. But um, I tell you what, I'm sure glad that we have modern medicine. <laughs> I was not wild about going into any medical facility given the pandemic situation, but but I'm certainly glad they were there. Um, and they sent me home with, you know, antibiotics just in case and were able to use all sorts of, you know, ointments and who knows what. I'm, I'm not educated formally in medical things, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. So I'm not exactly sure what all they used, but, you know, everything was sterile. Masks and gloves were used and... Just contrasting that to what we imagine um, medical treatment would have been like in the Southern Appalachian Mountains, you know, a hundred years ago, I'm uh, I'm pretty glad <laughs> with uh, the systems that we have in place these days. But anyway, I digress. So today we are talking about folk medicine and traditional modes of medicine uh, in the Southern Appalachian Mountains where they came from, some of the illnesses that people would get um, that we don't really hear so much about anymore or old names for them. So, um, as you probably know, traditional modes of medicine are still popular today. Um, you know, whether it's acupuncture, yoga, meditation, holistic health, um, we're looking at the body as more of, you know, an entire system these days, it seems, rather than just like, oh, there's a problem with one body part, let's just treat that body part. It seems like there's really this integration of, you know, body and mind and just looking at everything as a whole working together. Um, and I think uh, in a lot of these uh, ways of thinking about medicine traditionally, um, not just in Appalachia, but in other areas, you know, especially maybe um, India or those areas where meditation was very popular and used as a remedy or just a, a daily practice, um, people really saw the value in that, um, as well as using the plants and things that were right in their environment, um, which is certainly the case for Appalachia. Uh, if you're not aware, Appalachia is one of the most biodiverse areas on earth, um, if not the most biodiverse as far as the just the sheer variety of plant life. Um, but it, yeah, it's really a fascinating topic, and I'm sure... If you're ever at the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, the rangers there can tell you a lot about it. I had a good conversation with a ranger several years ago. Um, and in normal years, they used to do tours to see some of the different plants. Um, but yeah, if you're interested in that, I highly recommend that uh, once things are, you know, maybe back to normal. I, I wouldn't do it quite yet. Uh, but something to keep in mind. So when we're talking about Appalachia and medicine, um, one thing to keep in mind is that modern medicine came to the Appalachian regions later than other parts of the country. Uh, and this was for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, you had just an inherent distrust of outside doctors, uh, outsiders in general, to be honest. So, and when we look at this, um, I think there is something of a difference between northern and central Appalachia and southern Appalachia, uh, in large part because in the northern states, or, you know, kind of central northern, 
uh, I'm, I'm talking about like West Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania, Virginia, where you had the mining industries that were just huge. They just dominated every aspect of life for a good few decades, uh, particularly in West Virginia, just dominated the economy, uh, the politics, the landscape, quite literally the landscape, um, social structures with the mining camps. Um, so that was kind of a different setting from what we had in particularly Western North Carolina. So in this area, and for those of you who don't know, I'm based in Asheville. So, uh, yeah, the mountains with kind of foothills, of uh, of Western North Carolina, Southern Appalachia. But if you go further west into North Carolina and into Tennessee, what is now Great Smoky Mountains National Park, the major industry was logging. So you had kind of a, a different situation there. Um, but even so, um, the geography of all of these areas made it a little bit difficult to get to and from uh, any of these communities. And last time I talked about, you know, Coe Ridge is a prime example where, you know, you couldn't get there from here. Um, they didn't have roads for a very, very long time that went directly in. Um, and in Western North Carolina, it was mainly rivers that were the primary mode of transport. Um, so it was definitely not easy to get in. There were few incentives for doctors to come in from the outside um, until you had some of the programs starting in the 20th century or people native to the area who would go out and study medicine formally at a university. Um, So what did that leave them with? Well, they were left to their own devices, you know, like communities all around the world. Um, And so their own devices meant folk medicine. So when we talk about folk medicine, uh, we define it in a certain way. So let's just go over the basics here. So in the Southern Appalachian tradition, uh, there's a great book, Folk Medicine in Southern Appalachia. (laughs) Kind of self-explanatory there in the title uh, by Anthony Cavender, um, who is one of our great references in the dictionary for a lot of these topics. Uh, But he defines it. Uh, Folk medicine is generally thought of as traditional healing knowledge of a particular social group that is transmitted orally from one generation to the next. This definition, which evolved out of studies of European peasant societies in the 19th century, conceives of folk medicine as a body of largely archaic, outmoded knowledge retained among illiterate peoples. It is inappropriate for understanding folk medicine in general, in Southern Appalachia in particular, despite the region's inaccurate portrayal in the past as having a peasant subculture. Which sounds pretty negative. (laughs) That's that's my initial thought here. Um, But, you know, getting to the essence of this definition, he is right, I believe. You know, we're talking about one particular social group. Um, who did largely transmit the knowledge uh, through an oral tradition. But it is important to keep in mind that Appalachia is not a monolithic culture. Um, Even, you know, even within Western North Carolina, you have different traditions, different communities, you know, to again touch upon uh, the Coe Ridge uh, episode from last time, their culture was completely different from the surrounding towns, surrounding communities. Um, So, Take it with a grain of salt, if you will, and realize that 
you know, treatments may have differed slightly place to place. And as we'll also see, the names for some of the treatments and medicinal plants differ widely throughout Appalachia. Um, so who were these healers? Um, not everyone had this knowledge. Of course, it was passed down orally, but you did have people who really trained to do this or you would have it passed through you know, certain family members. People did specialize in this. Of course, they weren't going to university and getting you know, um, their MD or anything like that, but they would study. Um, you know, midwives were the same. They would learn from the females in their family. Um, you know, the granny women who would go to, as they said, catch babies, um, they would train the younger uh, women in their family um, so that this tradition was passed down. And it was much the same with folk medicine or what they particularly called herb doctors, uh, the healers, or in the Southern Appalachian pronunciation, yarb doctors. Um, so if we're looking in the dictionary, we have herb doctor. Uh, which is a folk healer, one who practices healing with the use of herbs. So there you go. Uh, We also have the similar terms conjure doctor, herb woman, Indian doctor, and witch doctor, which gives a little preview of where some of these traditions came from. But before we get ahead of ourselves, um, we have some really nice um, explanatory quotes within this entry. So 1924... Um, Rain writes in Land of Saddlebags. Now it happened that she was a yarb doctor. When the young teacher developed an eruption on his wrist, he went to her and asked whether she could give him some yarb tea to cure it. So in this instance, yarb tea means herb tea, which is still a pretty common thing. You know, we if you go to any grocery store, pretty much, you see, you know, the regular like black teas, green teas, and then you see the herbal teas which a lot of people still use for medicinal purposes. And there's a very strong tradition of herbal teas um, in Asia, particularly Chinese medicine. Um, So moving on, the next one we have in the history of Haywood County, that's North Carolina, from 1961. But Haywood County had its share of midwives, granny doctors, yarb doctors, and a few witch doctors in those days. And then in 1969, uh, there's a wonderful book about the Walker sisters, who I'll I'll talk a little bit more about here in a few minutes. Um, And it says, all the Walker sisters were herb doctors, as one visitor to their home discovered. So that, you know, that goes to show us again that um, certain families and certain family members really valued this knowledge and passed it on um, through various family members. And I'm not sure... I get the impression that it was mainly women who were trained in this herb medicine. Although, um, if you're particularly versed on this subject and you have evidence contrary, I would love to hear about it. Um, I am really curious, like, was it a more feminine practice? Um, And it might make sense that way, you know, if men were busy doing more of the manual labor um, and the women, you know, when you're taking care of children... Children are so susceptible to sickness and injury. So um, if you're, one of your main duties is to look after children, of course you're going to learn all of these remedies. So I suspect based on just that aspect of society as well as um, 
the evidence that we have in the research for the dictionary that so many of them mention uh, herb women uh, and doctor women, um, that it was primarily uh, a female pursuit, which is really cool uh, as a woman. (laughs) So um, then we have um, Horace Keppert actually talked quite a bit about this. um, And he started um, really observing the people and looking at how they treated various ailments. So Keppert uh, was a man in the early uh, 20th century. So he came into what is now Great Smoky Mountains National Park um, around the turn of the century. And, you know, he just fell in love with the place. He did one of the first really extensive research projects on the traditional um, crafts and industries Um, just all aspects of mountain life. He put together a glossary of words. Um, We, yeah, for the dictionary, this dictionary project, we have relied on Keppert's work quite a bit. Um, Even now, I believe now, it's been a couple of years since I've been to any of the visitor centers at um, the park. And I'm not even sure if they're open right now, to be honest. But the last time I was over there, it seemed like all the visitor centers that carried books for sale, they all had some of Keppert's work. And if you ever have a chance to look through it, it's just fascinating stuff, really. Um, He has diagrams, all sorts of quotes. He would interview people, uh, really immerse himself in the culture. And he was one of the proponents of establishing the National Park in the first place. So he's uh, definitely something of a local hero. Um, He was originally from Pennsylvania, um, like a, a lot of people, you know, in the early days of the park, they came from elsewhere and just absolutely fell in love with uh, the area. Easy to see why, if you've ever been out there, um, just like uh, Joseph Hall, whose work the dictionary is actually based on. He was there a little bit later than Keppert. Hall was there in the 1930s and 50s, and then kind of here and there up through the 60s and 70s. And Um, He was a grad student at Columbia University in New York. He was originally from, born in Montana, raised in California, I believe the story goes. Um, I apologize if I'm getting that wrong, (laughs) going off the top of my head here. But uh, he was a graduate student at um, Columbia University, and his doctoral dissertation was um, the phonetics of Smoky Mountain English. So, um, yeah, he also fell in love with the area, but... Again, I digress. Anyway, back to Keppert. So he uh, moved to Hazel Creek, uh, which is an area which is now incorporated into Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Um, And he worked really hard in the 1910s to really uh, get the idea of the national park off the ground. Um, And he just loved the people. He described them as, quote, hill folk who remain a rugged and hardy people in spite of unsanitary conditions. In times of scarcity, many of our people took to the woods and gathered commoner medicinal roots, such as bloodroot and wild ginger. There are scores of others growing wild in great profusion, but made only a pittance at it, as synthetic drugs have mostly taken the place of herbal simples in modern medicine. Um, Which is interesting, and this is still, you know, he was writing this in the early 20th century, So even then, you had modern medicine kind of making its foray into the region. Um, But there were definitely people who held tight to those traditional modes of healing. Um, So he also 
wrote about kind of, you know, straddling the line between medicine and linguistics, he came across some really curious terms and would write about ailments and illnesses that were common among the communities that he was researching that he had never heard of before. And it wasn't that he just hadn't heard of the term. He also had not come across these ailments in general. So these were very specific to the time and place. So, for example, he writes, Some of the ailments common in the mountains were new to me. For instance, dew pison. Presumably the poison of some weed which dissolved in dew enters the blood through a scratch or abrasion. As one woman described it, dew pison comes like a risin, and laws a mercy how it does hurt. I stove a briar in my heel once and then had to hunt cow every morning in the dew. So that's, you know, in dialect there, and I apologize for butchering it. As I've said before, it is not my native variety of English. Um, but what she's saying there, she uh, got a briar in her heel uh, one time, and then it um, had a rising. So, you know, we can imagine some kind of uh, swelling of the skin. Um, and it was incredibly painful. And it... Uh, that hits close to home. <laughs> Just reflecting on my experience yesterday. Um, but hopefully I did not get a case of dew poison. I don't think so. Um, but uh, I was reading a little bit more about dew poison. Um, and it seems like some of the um, the causes for it could have been things like ringworm um, or fungal, bacterial, any number of things. So that's another thing to keep in mind is when we look at these terms, oftentimes it's not just one cause or one specific disease, but it's more of a collection of symptoms that could have multiple causes, um, which, you know, that can, that can also be the case these days. Um, you know, sometimes you can have a viral infection or a bacterial infection, but they present in much the same way. So, um, yeah, despite having a lack of formal education and medical training. Um, it's pretty remarkable that they were able to categorize these things in a way that's so similar to how it's done today. Um, and even looking, you know, when we think about modern medicine, we think, you know, you just go to CVS or whatever pharmacy, uh, is down the street, pick up a bottle of pills like aspirin or whatever. But you have to think like, where did these medications come from? Well, Aspirin, case in point right here, came from willow bark. So you had people using traditional medicine, you know, really looking at these compounds hundreds of years ago before they were really distilled and uh, made more powerful that way and put into pill form that's a lot more convenient uh, for us to distribute. So they are all connected. So back to Keppert, though. Um, he goes on to write about a different ailment. He says... A more mysterious disease is milk sick, which prevails in certain restricted districts, chiefly where the cattle graze in rich and deeply shaded coves. If not properly treated, it is fatal to both the cow and to any human who drinks her fresh milk or eats her butter. It is not transmitted by sour milk or by buttermilk. There is a characteristic feeder of the breath. It is said that the milk from an infected cow will not foam and that silver is turned black by it. Mountaineers are divided in opinion as to whether this disease is of vegetable or of mineral origin. Some think it is an effer effervescence, <laughs> stumbling over the words here, 
from gas that settles on plants. I have not found this malady mentioned in any treatise on medicine, yet it has been known from our earliest frontier times. Abraham Lincoln's mother died of it. So, you know, if you're American, you know Abraham Lincoln is one of our kind of frontier presidents um, who did not come from, you know, the wealthier areas of New England as some of the early presidents did. Um, and it's it's really fascinating that supposedly his mother died of it. I do not have further research on that, but I would be really curious uh, to hear more about that. And milk sick, um, I think it's also milk disease. Um, I, I want to say there's another term in the dictionary um, that we reference, um, but it is pretty common in a lot of these texts. I'm actually going through the dictionary right now because I keep it handy like you do. <laughs> I suppose if you're a lexicographer, you keep it handy. I don't know about other people. Uh, milk fever, that is the other term. So yeah, we have milk fever, milk sick, milk poison. Um, but yeah, so anything that would affect uh, cattle. And um, we have another uh, quote here when they say, sometimes when the cow would have a young calf, why they'd have, they'd call it milk fever. And they just get down and they just die in a little bit if there wasn't something done for them. So we can, you know, gather from this that it, it was a pretty acute uh, illness. And another quote we have from 1968 uh, an interviewee reported that it was a sickness a cow gets in her udder if she hasn't been milked in too long. Um, and even today, you know, there there is that concern um, in dairy farming if a cow is not milked uh, properly or enough or frequently. Um, it's not good, not good for the animal at all. So um, looking a little bit deeper, where did folk medicine in Appalachia come from initially? Um, so in the book, The Spirit of the Mountains, uh, which was published in 1905, so well over a hundred years ago at this point, the author Emma Bell Miles wrote that knowledge of illness and treatment required shared knowledge between the Cherokee people and European Americans, um, which you probably guessed by this point. So the Cherokee had already been in this region for who knows how long, you know, hundreds of years, um, yeah, at least. Um, and so they, they knew the land inside and out, the plants, the animals. Um, and they did have certain rules of thumb, um, in their, their, uh, their views of the plants and their treatments for different ailments. Um, so looking at this, we have, uh, nearly ubiquitous knowledge among the people of Appalachia, according to John Campbell, who wrote in 1921, um, all the dwellers in the remote highlands are more or less familiar with the use of teas made from common herbs and roots, such as boneset, chamomile, sassafras, and pennyroyal. Um, so yeah, just looking that it was ubiquitous, um, as of the twenties, um, and I would definitely guess well before that. Um, so that speaks, you know, not only to these rich traditions of folk medicine, but also to the mixture of the different cultures in the area, um, which you wouldn't, you might not uh, initially think of. Uh, but a lot of the traditions that uh, the people in the mountains had, the European 
descended settlers had did come from the Cherokee. And again, you know, I touched on this last time a little bit. Um, but part of this was because marriage between uh, Cherokee and non-Cherokee settlers helped to spread the knowledge. Um, so you had the communities kind of adjacent to each other, but you also had them intermingling, um, you know, in pretty vital ways. Um, and the Cherokee also had uh, common sense, like, you know, these common uh, guidelines or rules that they would follow, as I, as I mentioned. So one of these thoughts was the Cherokee would eat what cattle ate. If the cattle wouldn't eat it, the Cherokee people wouldn't eat it either. And the European descendant uh, settlers, they observed this and they, you know, seemed like pretty good common sense. Um, so they started uh, following that line of thinking as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so as, as we can see, you know, well into the 20th century, uh, people still turn to the traditional ways. And um, even today, in many cases, I know uh, even here in Asheville, you have people who use some of the wild plants, uh, ginseng in particular. Now, ginseng is a very interesting topic, um, and we could probably do a whole episode on that, on uh, the politics around ginseng and uh, digging up ginseng root in the mountain and its medicinal uses and how it was sold and the, the trade surrounding it. Um, there's a lot to say there, uh, but yeah, uh, that's that's definitely one of the uh, the spur topics off of this broader topic. Um, so anyway, let's talk a little bit about some of the illnesses and treatments that were specific to the Appalachians. And of course, in particular, the Southern Appalachians, because that's my game here. Um, so first of all, we have something called apple rash, which we define as a children's skin rash caused by prolonged wearing of, un I'm sorry, unsanitary underwear in wintertime. I'm sure you can guess you would get a rash <laughs> wearing uh, dirty underwear. Um, and it, it's interesting to me that it's so specific to wintertime because I would think that, you know, summertime would cause a lot of issues as well. Um, so I'm I'm, I'm curious about that, that it was uh, more prevalent in winter, and perhaps it was related to uh, more limited nutrition available in winter because you didn't have all of the, the fresh produce. Uh, but anyway, so we have, in 1964, a book called Mountain Medicine. That old story of sewing children into their winter underclothes was no figment of the imagination. They were sewed in. And many a seam was ripped open by the doctor to make a hole big enough for the entrance of the stethoscope. Does not sound pleasant. He goes on. Tears flowed and little clutching hands tried vainly to prevent this desecration while the doctor listened to the heart and made note of the scabies lines across the skin. Apple rash, it was called. I suppose the name started because the time when apples ripened was the time when the old winter clothes were taken out for school wear. And in the old winter clothes lurked last winter's scabies. So there's another interesting theory. Uh, you know, if the cloth uh, were not cleaned properly enough um, and they put it on, or perhaps there was some sort of uh, organism living in the cloth. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about this. Um, and this is another one where it could be any number of causes. It could be just you know, a general term for a rash, and we just happen to have this uh, very descriptive 
uh, bit here for this situation. It doesn't mean it's limited just to that. Um, but it, it's an interesting example and does not sound pleasant <laughs> in the least. Uh, moving on, we have Beal, which comes up quite a bit. And if you've ever heard this this term, I'd, I'd love to hear your stories about it. So a Beal, um, we have it as either a noun, which is, you know, like a boil or uh, just some kind of inflammation on the skin that you can see. Uh, it also functions as a verb. So of a sore, especially one of the ear to fester or become infected, inflamed or abscessed. Uh, and then hence, we also have the noun bealing, which uh, can also refer to the abscess or the boil, especially one on the ear. So 1927, we have um, some notes on the dialect from West Virginia, so a little bit further north. Uh, Beal was a separating sore, the act of separating. He has a bad bealing on his hand. And then we have a more idiomatic usage of it. The place went to bealing this morning. We do not have a context for that. Um, but I think we can kind of imagine, you know, if, if it describes typically a sore that's festering or getting pretty nasty and infected. Uh, I think we can imagine uh, using that as an idiom for a place that's gone to bealing. But um, yeah, if you've used this or if you have heard it, I would love to hear your stories about that. That's a fascinating term. Um, and then the Dictionary of Regional or of American Regional English, excuse me, um, they did a, a huge survey in the 60s and they found various um, reports of this. Uh, one such was his head's beeled meant that he has pus coming out of his ear. So we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I'm getting a little squeamish here. So moving on, moving on. Uh, blood poison was another ailment, uh, pretty self-explanatory here. Uh, and there were various treatments for this and blood poison, you know, of course you had, well, various causes. Um, wasn't always possible to tell what the cause was. Um, outcomes varied, I'm sure, as you can imagine. Um, so going back to some of Hall's research in the 1930s, um, in Cosby, Tennessee, one of his interviewees reported that catnip and beadwood bark are boiled together and made into a poultice for blood poison. Um, and we do have a lot of evidence that catnip was used quite a bit for medicinal purposes, whether it was through a tea that you drink or for a poultice that you might put on an open wound um, or even a spot that was uh, sore, you know, not broken skin, um, but to soothe some sort of ache or pain. Uh, and beadwood bark, that's another one um, that is commonly used in a lot of these old um, testaments. Um and then a little bit later, 1939, from Hall again, uh, moving over across the state line from Big Creek, Tennessee, one of the interviewees said, there was a weed that they would call wild indigo. You can take it and it'll stop the blood poison. You take the roots, beat them up, put sweet milk in it, put it right on the wound, and it'll draw it white and cure it up. So there's... Uh, another one of these roots that had a lot of um, medicinal value, wild indigo. Um, and I just want to say, you know, as I go through these treatments and describe all of these things, I'm not a doctor. I am not offering you advice. I am not even recommending that you go looking for these things or try any of them. This is purely for informational purposes. I just want to say that just in case. So just entertainment, edutainment, whatever you want to call it. I just thought it was interesting and I thought you might think the same. So moving on, 
We have bold hives, and there is a lot of linguistic evidence for this ailment. Um, so we also have a lot of variants. So also called bull hives, bone hives, bull hives, red hives, stretch hives, uh, which is just in general a rash afflicting infants that is sometimes viewed according to folk belief as symptomatic of a potentially fatal internal disorder. So this is another one. When I was doing a little bit of research for this episode, um, it seems like different people would consider this uh, different things um, with different causes. And a lot of the informants seem to think that it was something affecting the liver um, deep down. Um, Others were not that specific. Uh, But let me just go through a few of these so you can get kind of uh, an idea of all the different ideas about bold hives. So 1949, um, we have a quote that says, Sue Annie said that he would get no better until she got the hives broke out on him and hinted when she came in the late afternoon with a bottle of freshly made rattle root tea she was afraid the hives were working in on him instead of out or ever going into the bowl hives. So this is indicative of the belief that if a baby was sick, it had these hives, this rash somewhere on the inside of their body or the inflammation was on the inside. And so the belief was that the healer, the herb woman or, you know, doctor needed to do something, apply some treatment to get the inflammation to come to the outside of the body. So they actually wanted the rash to appear. And they thought that was one of the hallmarks of this illness healing up. Um, So then we have another description in 1971, a book about granny women, uh, which is another term for uh, an older woman who, you know, practices folk medicine, herbal medicine, um, especially uh, midwives, Um, that kind of uh, practice. But we have here, Mrs. Andy Webb told us, it looks sort of like the measles, but it ain't measles. Them's bold hives. The bold hives work around the heart. They'll have them after they're born, and if the hives don't break out on them, it's the bone hives, and it'll kill them. You gotta do something to clear the liver up. So this is really a sophisticated way of thinking about this. And earlier I was talking about, you know, categorization of these uh, ailments. Um, And it really seems, you know, it's almost like there's a flow chart here um, where they look at each symptom one by one, just like, you know, a modern doctor in a a typical Western medicine setting would do today. You know, you look at these collection of symptoms, how the patient is presenting. Um, But in this case, they assume that it is surrounding the heart, Um, and then if they can't get the inflammation to come to the surface, um, it's actually affecting the bones, um, which is somehow tied to the liver. And again, you know, I don't have any training in medicine formally, um, which seems like two completely different things to me. But, you know, as I was talking about earlier, if you're looking at the body as one system and taking a more holistic approach, I mean, it's not so out there, really. And I get the feeling, you know, maybe... I don't know, 30, 50 years ago, people might have just thought this was all bunk and um, not taken it seriously, but really looking at um, how medicine is kind of coming full circle to embrace all of these different modes of thinking. Um, It's not so out there from where I'm sitting. 
So moving up a little bit in 2003, Anthony Cavender's book again, he describes it as an infant-specific and potentially fatal illness caused by hives remaining inside the body, also known as stretch hives and red hives. And then um, 2006, the Encyclopedia of Appalachia. I think I've mentioned this one before, but if you're not familiar, it's a fantastic resource. Excuse me. Um, If you've never picked it up, it is a hefty book. Um, I highly recommend uh, getting a copy of it if you're interested in any of these topics. Anyway, um, bold hives. An infant-specific illness introduced by the Scots and Scots-Irish is a good example. Many believe that all newborns have a mysterious entity within them known as the hives. Infants were administered a tea, often made of catnip, there we go again, or ground ivy to induce the hives out of the body. If not treated, the hives would turn inward, causing damage to the heart and lungs and ultimately death. Now that's another interesting take on this, um, just the assumption that every baby is born with this, uh, more or less. Um... So, yeah, very interesting. It makes me wonder if in some communities, uh, infants were just, you know, across the board given some kind of catnip tea uh, or something um, just as a preventative or just, you know, as a natural course of the the birth process um, or a little bit later. We don't see um, from this quote how soon after birth the baby would be given this treatment, but a very interesting Um, And then a little bit more about dew poison. I didn't realize I had so much here about dew poison, but let's talk about it. So since there are just so many um, potential causes and manifestations of it, so this one might get a little bit gross here. But so for this, I'm turning to um, our dictionary. So we define it as a bacterial or fungal skin rash. Uh, especially through a cut on the feet, once attributed to the toxic effect of walking barefoot on the grass, especially in the late summer and therefore associated with the dog days. If you've heard the term the dog days of summer, that is typically around August, which we are rapidly approaching just, you know, the hottest time of summer or as some people like to call it around here, hell's front porch. (laughs) If you've experienced the humidity on the hottest day in the Appalachians, uh, North Carolina, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, But anyway, yeah, and the dog days is, of course, associated with um, the constellation Sirius and the dog star, which is uh, rising that time of the year. So hence dog days. Uh, Anyway, so back to Earth and back to dew poison. So... Um, back to Keppert. So he just really wrote a lot on this. Um, so he said dew poison was presumably the poison of some weed, which dissolved, uh, in dew enters the blood through scratch or abrasion. Um, yeah, as I said before, and the pain apparently would just cause, uh, people to feel like they were going to die or almost like they wanted to die. Uh, one patient said her legs swelled up and turned black uh, all the way up to the knee and she was laying in a pallet or on a pallet on the floor for over a month. Um, and she also said she's seen people who just have sores all over from it, um, sores that would be as big as her hand um, from this dew poison disease. Um, and it kind of makes me wonder because I remember when I was a kid, you know, I never wore shoes in the summer lived in fairly rural areas, um, not in Appalachia though. So 
I was typically uh, coastal Carolina, uh, Ohio, well, parts of Kentucky as well. But I remember many times uh, walking through the grass, you know, early morning, feeling the dew on my toes. And I always love that feeling. Um, the bad experience I had with that once was I ended up stepping on a bee when I was five. But I luckily, I never experienced anything uh, like what they describe dew poison to be. Um, so as late as, uh, well, what do we have here? 1955, we have a book, uh, Country Doctor. A complaint with many children as well as adults was dew poison, characterized by slow healing sores on the feet and legs and often on the hands and arms. Although uh, at the time I did not recognize dew poison as the preliminary stage of hookworm disease, nor did I associate it with the stunted anemic condition of the mountain children. The absence of privies at the homes made the disease very prevalent. So going back to the earlier quote about unsanitary conditions, um, I think we can see why it would have been so prevalent in these areas and why we don't hear about it so much anymore, thankfully. Um, So yeah, hookworm is uh, not something we want to mess around with. Um, And when you have your nutrition already pretty poor to begin with, um, especially if the children are anemic, you know, from birth perhaps, um, which of course, you know, is uh, low iron in the blood. They're just not going to be able to fight off these sorts of infections very well, which is another reason why uh, infant and childhood mortality rates were pretty high on those days compared to today Um, and in that area as compared with some other regions. Um, And then as a final uh, example here, we have Hall who wrote in 1960, St. John's weeds wet with dew will cause sores and risins or dew poisoning on the skin. He's very specific about St. John's weeds, which we know today St. John's wort, um, which you've probably heard about. Um, It's used widely as a medicinal tea. I think they might even sell capsules of it. I'm not really sure. Um, but as a treatment for depression um, and other things along those lines. So very interesting. So when we're talking about uh, common treatments, speaking of which, um, I don't actually see St. John's wort, St. John's weed uh, mentioned all that much in the research, but some of the ones that uh, we do see a lot, we see pennyroyal, which you may have heard of, um, which can be extremely poisonous. Um, And it is used for some very specific purposes. It is a branching annual mint plant. um, And some of its medicinal uses include treating pneumonia and colds um, or to cause a miscarriage. Um, So uh, some of the quotes we have here from 1943 in Mountain People If the cold went beyond the simple uh, reach of sage, which was your first line of defense, uh, again, something that's commonly used today, sage, uh, whether in, uh, you know, medicinal teas or just in food, like Italian food. Sounds good. Anyway, uh, if it went beyond the simple reach of sage and developed into, quote, pneumonia fever, then pennyroyal was called into use. Um, 1994... Um, Michael, my co-author, he did some research and he was talking about this with one of his interviewees in Tennessee. 
And this person reported that pennyroyal was used to ward off fleas and chiggers, which if you have ever suffered from either one of those things, <laughs> uh, you probably would be willing to use uh, any number of remedies to get rid of them or, you know, ward them off. Um, then 1999, we have the book Gap Creek. Uh, everybody knows what you take for the colic is pennyroyal tea. And Mama boiled some as soon as the stove was hot, even before she cooked any breakfast. Um, so colic is one of these terms. You know, these days we associate it with babies, um, usually thought of to be some kind of uh, intestinal distress or stomach pain that just makes a baby cry and cry and cry. Uh, and it was mostly the same in those days as well. Um, although it might be, you know, construed as any sort of stomach complaint or discomfort. So, um, yeah, you had all sorts of people taking this. I do not recommend it <laughs> again. So word of warning there, just take this as it is and then walk away from it. Please do not consume these things uh, without consulting your doctor. Next, sassafras. Um, so sassafras is a lot more common, um, and... I had always had the impression it was, you know, pretty mild. Anybody could drink it. Um, but there's kind of some controversy now. Um, anyway, so let's start earlier. Uh, so sassafras is a common deciduous tree that grows at lower and middle elevations. From its roots or bark, sassafras tea, also referred to as sass tea in the Appalachians, is made and drunk for kidney trouble as a spring tonic for refreshment and a substitute for coffee. Um, so a spring tonic, uh, there were numerous concoctions. And again, this is the sort of thing that would differ family to family, region to region. Um, people would feel after the long winter where they're not getting very much fresh food, um, and also a little bit sluggish, not moving much. They'd start to feel low, you know, when springtime rolled around and they have all these crops to get in the ground and all this, uh, manual labor to do they were just not feeling up to it. So they would concoct what they called spring tonics um, out of various plants to give them energy. And they also believed that a lot of these plants would clean the blood. So there was also the belief that the blood kind of got, I don't know, thick and dirty over the winter, um, which, you know, it can certainly feel like that, you know, come February, if you've been more or less snowed in for a few months, it's just like, oh my gosh, can't move. There's the sun, time to get up. Um, but yeah, so they would take that sort of thing, um, rather than some sort of energy drink or something like that. Um, and you also have it being used as a coffee substitute. And there were numerous coffee substitutes, um, cause sometimes coffee could be a little bit hard to get a hold of, um, not a native plant in the Appalachians. So, uh, we also have an alternative name for the sassafras, uh, tree, which is root beer tree. So, and if you've ever had like iced sassafras tea, it does kind of have that root beer, like the root beer soft drink I'm talking about. It does have kind of that flavor. Um, I've actually had sassafras tea many times in my life. Um, when I was a, a kid, I remember drinking it. Uh, I think my mom would make it or she'd buy it for us or something. Anyhow, <laughs> I remember having it. Um, and I didn't suffer any ill effects from it, but again, don't don't do it. Um, you know, or if you're doing it, don't blame me. There we go. Anyway, so 1939, back to Mr. Joseph Hall, uh, in Tennessee, he had one of his interviewees report that when we'd get sick or anything, they'd make sassafras tea, you know, and have us all drink it. 
So kind of used as an all-purpose tonic. Um, 1967, Jones writes, Sassafras tea was a very pleasant, mild spring tonic, especially recommended for those who are recuperating from a serious illness. And um, 1994, we have an interviewee um, talking to my co-author, Michael, who said, nothing is better than cornbread, lassus, and sassafract tea. So we have a lot of different pronunciation variants here for sassafras. So sassafract is one of those, also sassifrac. But what he's talking about here is a meal, a very simple meal made of cornbread. Lassus, you can probably guess, is molasses. So a lot of the people in the Southern Appalachians love to just drench their cornbread in molasses, which does sound pretty tasty, gotta say. Um, And then sassafras tea on the side. So between the medicinal properties of the tea and all that sugar and the molasses, that would probably give you some good energy. Um, And then we um, have a report from 2001 um, where, you know, people starting to get a little bit wary of these plants um, and just consumption of sassafras tea and whether it's really good for us or not. So we have Jocelyn writing... The popularity of sassafras tea has dipped sharply in the past decade, as government warnings and regulations have frightened some from its consumption. Several years ago, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration banned sassafras tea for sale in interstate commerce for alleged carcinogenic properties. Safrol, part of the volatile oils of sassafras, was found to cause liver cancer in rats when it made up uh, 0.5-1% to of their total food. Some health food stores today sell saffron-free sassafras extracts for worried consumers. Homemade sassafras tea continues to appeal to mountain residents of all ages. Um, Yeah, so people still want to go about their traditional um, ways, you know, no matter what the FDA says. I I suppose they figure if everybody's um, been drinking this stuff for who knows how long, then they're just going to keep doing it. So um, then we have um, another uh, treatment called Charlie Liniment. So this is not just one plant, but this is um, an ointment. Um, so we have here, uh, this is usually attributed to the Walker sisters. So the Walker sisters uh, were six unmarried sisters whose parents settled in what is now the Little Greenbrier uh, Cove area of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park um, following their father, John Walker's return from the Civil War in 1866. They were a homestead family, um, self-sufficient, 11 kids who lived. And that is saying something in those days. So seven girls, four boys, um, six of the daughters never married and they inherited the farm altogether. So they had equal parts of this inheritance um, as all the other siblings uh, married and moved away. And these uh, six sisters lived there um, until the last one died in 1964. And they were some of the last inhabitants of the national park. Um, And I'll have to cover this a little bit more in depth in another episode sometime. But when the National Park was established, um, you know, they started trying to make deals with people uh, who owned land within the park boundaries and, you know, start trying to figure out the logistics like, okay, we kind of want them to leave, but they've lived here forever. So it's, you know, what do we do? Do we buy them out? Um, So 
the Walker sisters were given a lifetime lease deal. So the National Park Service said, okay, yeah, you know what? You've been here forever. You guys are pretty cool. Um, it's yours until you die. And then you cannot, you know, bequeath it to anybody in your will. The National Park Service will take over um, upon your death. And that is exactly what set, what uh, happened. Um, but we do know that their mother, Margaret, uh, was uh, a Yarb woman, if you will, and they followed uh, in her footsteps. And they kept just the most amazing um, herb garden, uh, particularly for making their different remedies. And their garden included horseradish, boneset, peppermint to make healing teas. Um, they also would go out foraging for natural uh, plants and um, would make all sorts of remedies. And people in the communities nearby, really, they knew them for this. They were renowned in the area. And one of the sisters once said, our land produces everything we need uh, except sugar, soda, coffee, and salt, which is pretty impressive. Um, so they did manufacture their own uh, herb mixtures, teas, and kind of did, you know, some kind of grassroots, so to speak, uh, marketing for one of their products, which they called Charlie Liniment, um, which uh, actually the National Park Service website, nps.gov, they have a wonderful page about the Walker sisters. Um, there's actually some exhibits where you can go. I think one of their cabins may still be standing. Um, I think there is an exhibit dedicated to them at uh, Cades Cove, if memory serves. But you'll, you'll have to check it out yourself and report back to me. But anyway, uh, NPS talks about it and they say the mainstay of the Walker sisters healing potion was Charlie Liniment, which was a soothing balm of secret ingredients concocted by Uncle Charlie Walker. It was an herb mixture you, that used Indian turnip and may apple root along with many others and is remembered as being hot as hell's hinges and quote, mighty powerful. For headache or fainting, it was rubbed on the temples. Charlie liniment on the chest helped coughs, colds, and other lung ailments and stiffness was eased by rubbing it in the muscle. In fact, it was used practically every way except internally. So really nice, uh, all purpose, uh, almost sounds like some sort of, uh, icy hot predecessor. Um, and yeah, I wonder people, uh, the manufacturers who do icy hot and, um, some of those things, if, if they researched Charlie Lineman initially, um, but yeah, moving on. So we have, uh, just a couple more I'll touch on here before I wrap up. So, uh, you have root teas that are just made of all sorts of different things. Uh, bear's paw, uh, bear's paw root tea considered uh, good to cure a cold or a fever. Uh, although the remark is made that, quote, it takes a good nerve to drink it because of its, quote, dark bitterness. Um, and I would, you know, I would assume that many of these root teas had a dark bitterness. I don't imagine that they were particularly pleasant. But... They seem to do the trick in many cases. Um, we also have arrowwood, which was a type of black hall plant uh, that had medicinal uses. And this one, this is one of the many that were identified as being effective in women's complaints. Um, so in 2006, Howell writes in a book about medicinal plants, historically the straight, smooth branches were used to make arrows, hence the common name arrowwood. In the late summer, small dark blue-black berries, blue-black berries, <laughs> tongue twister, or halls appeared. 
Black Halls was a common ingredient in formulas for women's, quote, monthly troubles and was used to relieve menstrual cramps, prevent miscarriage, and as a labor tonic during the last few weeks of pregnancy. It was an ingredient in one of the best-selling herbal remedies of all time, Lydia Pinkham's Vegetable Compound for Females. Um, You may well have heard about this. Um, And actually, there's a wonderful podcast, if you're not familiar, called History Chicks, and they talk a lot about, they have an episode about Lydia Pinkham um, and go into uh, her, her compound for females and its various uses. So that's, it's really interesting. So... Uh, black hall was also used to relieve nervousness, stomach cramps, and ticks or spasms. So it sounds like just a nice relaxing uh, medicine. So uh, beyond that, we also have uh, bearberry. Um, another one that um, this one uh, you would make tea and this would treat lower back pain. Um, it also made a tasty jelly. It was a type of high bush cranberry. Um, Balm of Gilead was a small poplar tree whose buds have medicinal uses, especially when made into a salve to treat burns and other skin problems, so very soothing. Um, This one is also called Gilly Balm. Um, You have Iron Blood, also called Iron Root, which is a bone set tea. Bone set was found everywhere, and you you run across many different uh, remedies um, using bone set in one way or another. Um, and then one of my personal favorites is Killier Curie. <laughs> and this was uh, the name of, you know, one of these indigenous plants where um, it did exactly what it said. Either it would kill you pretty quick or cure you right up. Um, yeah, not sure how modern medicine would view that sort of treatment uh, these days. But it gives you a little a taste, so to speak, of what some of the popular... Uh, folk medicinal treatments were and some of the ailments that people dealt with uh, in the 19th and early 20th centuries and probably prior to that in the southern Appalachian Mountains. Uh, And with that, you know, I could go on and on. There are so many uh, entries in the dictionary and just so much information out there in general about these uh, folk uh, healing modes and you know, there's certainly enough for many, many books on the subject. And there are, in fact, many books. Um, if you're curious about any of those, I will put links um, to some of my references uh, in the show notes if you want to look into those further. Um, or if you are well-versed in the subject and you want to share more of your re- resources with me, I would love to hear about it. Um, drop me a message at appalachian.dictionary at gmail.com. Again, welcome your messages. Uh, But I will round things out for there, and I will go and rest my foot. (laughs) As uh, as interesting as the herbal medications and treatments are, I think for this, I'm just going to stick with the antibiotic ointment that they gave me, you know. Call me a wimp if you will. I'm just going to stick with that for now. But uh, with that, I hope you are all doing well. Uh, being safe and um, just riding out this summer uh, the best way you can given our circumstances and when things calm down please do come check out the Southern Appalachians Asheville, my neighborhood we welcome you take care